Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. On today's episode, we're talking about The Workers' Cup, a documentary from 2017 that follows a small group of migrant workers in Qatar who take in a football tournament meant to boost morale. Later on, we'll be joined by Michael Page, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, to dig more into the issues surrounding this year's World Cup. Let's hear a clip from the doc. In a tournament like this, maybe scouts will be coming around to big players. So I have this hope and courage that maybe I can have a way out. It's showing in the newspaper of Nepal, stating that Nepali players are playing for this Workers' Cup. So they will be happy to recruit people for us. That will make profit for us. It was never about the worker. The company's interest is to set up for the 2022 World Cup. But I thought that maybe we also be considered as not at work as maybe as footballers. Those voices you heard in the clip are just a few of the million plus migrant workers who built the FIFA 2022 World Cup in Qatar since 2010. More than 6,500 workers have died over the past 12 years, and those deaths are tied to an abusive sponsorship system, which has been compared to modern-day slavery. There's also a lack of protection for workers from the hot sun and many more abuses. With that as the backdrop, the documentary follows this group of underdogs who are taking part in the Workers' Cup, a tournament organized by the 2022 World Cup Organizing Committee and 24 construction companies. So, Nam, what did you think of the doc? Um, before I tell you what I think of the doc, I don't know if you can hear my dog in the background. She's got a lot of opinions. <laughs> well, she, yeah, she oh, really me, has she, a lot of opinions. Me. <laughs> I think she wants to go outside and play with uh, the snow. Um, I really, you know, it's one of those documentaries, obviously, that's super heavy because these are the lives of people who are just really trying to do the best they can to provide for their families and to provide for themselves. Um, I there was a, one gentleman in Kenya, and I really related to uh, the struggles that he was going through. What did you think of the documentary, Colin? I liked being able to see these guys be given some form of entertainment, some form of dignity, while they're obviously enduring pretty hard working conditions and living conditions. And, and that's the tournament that they play, right? Yes, in the Workers' Cup. I mean, they're constantly asking for more training because they want to get good. Um, you know, they're playing other teams and, you know, it's very competitive. And I think that it was nice to see these guys really, you know, strive to be the best that they could be all while they're, you know, again, building the infrastructure for like an incredibly massive project, you know, on a scale that's just, you know, kind of unheard of. Right. Like it's a it's a massive undertaking that these guys are being forced into and uh, they're not treated the best. So it was, it was good to see this documentary kind of give them some humanity. Yeah, and uh, they are part of uh, history. They are making history. Um, but it, I don't know, sometimes it kind of made me feel sad because we all know that it's a little bit of a distraction from the hardships that they're facing day to day. 
And, you know, when you see those kind of, uh, remember those Gladiator movies? Where, I just watched Gladiator the other night. Right. That's what it felt like <laughs> for me. It was kind of like uh, they're being used, uh, their bodies are being used to create labor. They don't have the freedoms that we take for granted. And then now they're in this kind of tournament where they're amusing the people there and it's supposed to be something for them. But is it? But uh, near to the end of the documentary, there is a powerful moment where one of the managers of the team lays into the tournament. He says, quote, uh, they're abusing the humans here. We are not slaves. We have rights. End quote. It's a powerful moment of uh, reflection where they know, like they know, they understand what's happening, that they know that even though this tournament is entertaining, they're aware that they are being abused and manipulated. Yeah. And many people have recognized the scope of the abuse in Qatar. Amnesty International is calling upon Qatari officials to create a remediation fund for workers. And many people are actually boycotting the tournament. Um, That said, Ontario has the largest share of migrant workers on farms in Canada. The province has 43% of all workers, followed by Quebec and British Columbia. Their working conditions have come into question many times. Just recently, a group of Jamaican workers in Niagara penned an open letter calling what they experienced as a form of slavery. This letter was written in response to the death of Gavin Yap, who was killed in an accident. But the scope of migrant worker abuse worldwide is much, much bigger. To dig into the World Cup and the issues facing migrant workers, we've got a conversation with Michael Page from Human Rights Watch. He's been leading the group's work around the World Cup. So let's go to that conversation. Do you follow soccer? Like, are you a fan? Yeah, I'm a fan. I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I watched it when I was a, when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up playing it. I grew up... Uh, Enjoying it. I mean, they had like, um, what was it? Like, they had Champions League on like ESPN, like in afternoons, and you'd follow like the Real Madrid, you know, the oh, okay. 90s and stuff. But I still follow it these days. I mean, they have it, you know, I, I try to watch it in the mornings. I kind of enjoy, as chatting, I think, with Matthew, like Liverpool and stuff, watching right. like Mo Salah. But uh, there's very few teams where you're like, I don't feel like, comfortable because like quite a few nation states now owning teams and have right. their own problematic records. So I, I like it as a fan. I mean, I, you know, I hope U.S. soccer does well, but they always disappoint. So <laughs> I don't think, well, you know. I think this is the first time Canada has been in like over 30 years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it wasn't like 86 or something. It's yeah. been a while. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't follow uh, okay. soccer or any sport really. Um, anytime like say Toronto is in the playoffs, you know, I yeah. might follow like that or, or maybe I'll watch a few games if Canada right. does well, but usually I just sort of stay out of it. How about uh, the the doc? Did you did you like the doc? Oh, I mean, I love. I mean, I've now watched it like three, four times, five times. You know, over the past past few years. I mean, the doc is doc is powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's just these these guys where where you really empathize with their like with their circumstances you know yeah. they're just away from families trying to work hard but like many of these guys like brought like really hardcore dreams that have been upended mm-hmm. and they're just trying to like navigate you know with that so yeah i, I really liked the doc i thought it was good too for who we showed it to was an audience of like high school kids oh, you know nice. trying to make a trying to make a connection between our lives like very distant you know far away but like there's a link between us you know the jerseys we wear 
the tickets we purchase, what we watch on TV, and the kind of profit centers from that, which is which is FIFA and Qatar, and so their their kind of lives are connected to us from, unfortunately, the abuses you mm-hmm. know that have happened to them and the kind of wages that have been stolen from them. Yeah, well, let's get into that. I mean, yeah. even following the FIFA World Cup in Qatar and the migrant workers who were there for a while now, um, can you just talk a bit about the uh, the background of these workers, who they are, what they've experienced? Yeah, absolutely. So. It, Qatar, when when they were awarded the World Cup in in 2010, you know, Qatar had this massive uh, infrastructure deficit that they had to make up. Right, when you host a, a World Cup, you need to build stadiums, you need to often expand your metro lines, you need to expand hotels. So there was a tremendous amount to build, and Qatar's labor force is something like 95 percent migrant workers. You know, there are over two million people that, you know, have have built Qatar over this period and built the infrastructure for the World Cup. And these these, you know, both men and women, but often when we when we see in the construction sector overwhelmingly men, you know, they are from places like Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, uh, also African countries such as Kenya, uh, Uganda, um, also, uh, Philippines is another big origin country for migrant workers, and they work in the spectrum of jobs in Qatar. So everything from you know building the stadiums to the World Cup to expanding the road infrastructure to uh, servicing hotels, serving you your coffee in Starbucks. So you, when you go to Qatar, one of the things that's very clear is that you see these men and women you know, working, you know, all across the spectrum, really, you know, you're engaging with them daily, all across. And I think, you know, they are coming to realize dreams and support family in really fundamental ways. So they're going, they're often away from their families and loved ones for sometimes a two year period, but sometimes years, like they have not seen their family years at a time, or they've seen them once, you know, in four or six years, they are taking the vast majority of the money that they receive and sending it back home. They're sending it back home for uh, their their parents to live a slightly better life, for their kids to have a better education, to own a home. Uh, so, you know, they, they're there for doing that. And I think the issue, the fundamental issue is that while some people have been able to achieve their dreams, you know, some people are proud of what they built. Many people are proud of what they built. Many migrant workers have faced very serious abuses in Qatar over the past dozen years, directly related to building this World Cup infrastructure, and their dreams have turned into nightmares the worst way. Why, why would Qatar be given the the World Cup if their infrastructure was if there was such a deficit in their infrastructure? It's a really good question. I mean the 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 hosting of recent World Cups have been embroiled in controversy. You know, um, there was a real question about Qatar hosting the World Cup in 2010 for several reasons. One of them, of course, was these fundamental human rights issues, not around just migrant workers, but also LGBT people's rights, w- women's rights in Qatar. There's a real concern just like just the idea of, of fans coming. Will, will fans be safe, right? But from us, for us as a human rights organization, we care about not just fans, but also residents and, and migrant workers who live there. So certainly that was one question. But I think another kind of fundamental question that's linked to rights, but isn't just rights related is, how are you going to host a World Cup 
in a place in the summertime when, when, when World Cups are usually hosted, when the average temperature in July can be 42 Celsius, right? I mean, that is something that is incredibly dangerous for people to be outside for extended periods. And I mean, it's why the World Cup is not be, not, didn't happen in the summer, right? It's happening in November and December because simply it was too dangerous for the, the World Cup to be hosted in Qatar for fans and, and for football players, right? Football players being some of the most, uh, um, you know, in-shape athletes and being like, nope, too dangerous for them. Who it wasn't too dangerous for was for the migrant workers who built all of this infrastructure, including during these incredibly hot summer periods where they were outside. And so, like, I don't think it's a mystery why there were at least thousands of unexplained deaths in Qatar because it's a really dangerous job to do this and there weren't sufficient protections in place for these people to to do that. I mean, it's just very dangerous. I think I saw one stat that said 6,500 had died. Is that... So the, 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 the statistics that have come out, the, the challenge with it is Qatari authorities have not investigated uh, migrant workers' deaths sufficiently. They haven't been transparent about it. They haven't had independent, independent investigations. They haven't released comprehensive and disaggregated data. So for, from, for, from us as a human rights organization like Human Rights Watch, we simply don't know how many migrant workers have died. We have say, said there's thousands of unexplained deaths, but that is something that you know, really needs to be accounted for. But it's clearly a huge problem. I mean, our my colleague has kind of followed the return of migrant workers' bodies back home to Nepal over the kind of like winding roads, often in like more rural areas. And it's a kind of a tragic and, and, and sad journey where migrant workers' families not only are dealing with this emotional toll that that they have to kind of manage. They're also dealing with two other really just kind of big things looming over them. Number one, which is just the the, the bureaucratic logistics of bringing a body back from Qatar in which they have to kind of, they have to make sure that there's a lawyer, they have to have official papers, they need to get a death certificate from, from Qatari authorities, they have to interact with their embassy. And they're also dealing with the terrifying financial reality that is often their breadwinner who, who has died. And so I guess what I wanted to kind of zoom out is, or, or zoom in is to put these deaths in context, right? There, is, there are thousands of unexplained deaths, but there is individual families that have been absolutely devastated and they're often uncompensated. Mm. So many migrant worker deaths in Qatar, there's an incentive for employers to categorize, categorize them as non-work related. So, oh, if you die a heart attack, oh, you have like kidney failure, that could be just natural causes, right? But those are often linked to heat problems. Those are heat, you know, the, the, the stress and, and, uh, and trauma that that uh, that heat brings to the human body is something that we're understanding more and more every day. But unfortunately, there is an incentive for employers to categorize those as non-work related, so they don't have to pay compensation. And so, so the, yeah. yeah, so the family don't they don't get any help from the company if, exactly. if their family member dies on working on the site, for example. Exactly, and yeah. so and so it's really left this toll of devastation that has has led. Uh, migrant workers' families to have these like horrible choices about, you know, pulling daughters out of schooling, right? Yeah. Or, 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 or not being able to survive or pay back debt. Well, one of the subjects in the film that we're discussing, he, you know, he was, he was, I think, tricked into going. He was actually, he paid an, an agent, someone, uh, I think $1,500 
to basically go, and I think he was under the impression he was going to play soccer. What are the, I guess, ways that migrants end up working in Qatar? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's this really important issue to kind of to kind of like highlight, which is one of the main, I think, probably the one of the biggest problems regarding migrant workers in Qatar is that there is just this fundamental power imbalance between the employers that are bringing migrant workers to Qatar and the migrant workers themselves. It is systematized in this system called the kafala system or sponsorship system in which uh, employers have disproportionate power over migrant workers coming. And that includes even information, right? So migrant workers are often recruited by recruitment agencies or from employers themselves, they are, there's a series of kind of abuses that have occurred over the years, such as being lied to about the nature of the job that you're taking on, being lied to about the amount of money that you're going to earn, you know, with the, with the job, the reasons for this job. So in the, in the documentary, the, the Workers' Cup, you know, the recruiter is essentially lying to one of the, one of the characters saying, yeah, you can play football and there might be recruiters. Of course, that's a total lie. They're, they're, they are there to work. But that is not some kind of uh, uh, just simply anecdotal experience. Unfortunately, there has been a pattern over years of workers not knowing the kind of fundamental realities of the, of the job that they're taking because this power balance power imbalance exists. But number two, because there hasn't been kind of sufficient oversight and regulation from Qatari authorities to kind of address this power imbalance. And are the employers, like, where do they mostly hail from? Uh, Employers can be uh, local or international companies. So, right, we have everything in in Qatar from, you know, well-known five-star hotel chains to pretty small uh, uh, what would be called like labor supply companies, right? Who are who are essentially helping kind of subcontract out labor on demand as it's needed, you know, for a variety of services. Those services could be construction, but they could also be, for instance, the guards who stand uh, outside of of uh, of hotels and might or might not be protected from the very harsh summer conditions. And so, yeah, we have a variety of, of employers with a variety of, let's call it, due diligence and standards around fundamental labor rights. So, you know, it, it, you know we can think of uh, migrant workers in Qatar as really facing this, like, kind of lottery system. Sometimes they can have good employers. They can be paid on time. They can have, like, really clear insight into the type of the job that they're doing and the nature. Other times, they're being lied to. They're having their wages stolen from them. They often pay recruitment fees. So they're paying the recruiter to work. So you're essentially, essentially paying to work in Qatar, and then you often are like burdened with debt. And so if you then face additional abuses in Qatar, let's say your employer is unscrupulous and doesn't pay you for months at a time, you are in real trouble because you not only don't have wages to send back home to people who are relying on that money, you might have debt that is being charged at a very high interest rate that you have to pay back. And how are you going to do that? They are coming with so much hope. Once they are rich, their camps, their life is something different. One scene in the documentary that was pretty, uh, I think, speaks to a lot of what we're discussing is this, this gentleman who was attacked by another worker. And basically he did that because he wanted to go back home. 
Now, I think most people would think, well, why don't you just quit and leave, right? But why would he do that uh, just to leave? Why, why can't he? Can why can't you just you know say I'm done, I'm quitting, send me home? That's such a that's such a um, uh, searing scene in the documentary because the person who's attacked when they ask him about what what happened, he says, "Look, he was just he was just a normal guy, very nice guy. He just wanted to get home." And the circumstances that lead someone to that that it's just fundamentally you are at times you know trapped, right? So for for years. Uh, migrant workers couldn't even leave Qatar without permission from from their employer. Now, in the past several years, they removed for many workers this uh, requirement to do so, which was called the like uh, the exit visa permit. So workers now, in many cases, are able to leave the country you know, without their their employer's permission. However, all of these other problems that kind of trap workers in a job that is abusive still exist. If you haven't been paid, you know, it's really a risk for you to leave the country because you're likely not going to get that money back, right? Uh, you can still be at risk of a charge called or a crime called absconding. So let's say you're a migrant worker. You want to leave abusive conditions, you know, in, among your employer. Even today, the the charge of absconding has not been removed. So your employer can try to report you and say, "This guy has left the has left my employment, you know, unlawfully. You know, you should detain him." And so, okay, the 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 Qatari authorities can can reject that that claim, but that still exists. So there's just a variety of ways in which workers can still be trapped in very abusive situations. For for years, there was a pervasive problem or a widespread problem of 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 uh, employers just confiscating migrant workers' passports, and then you really can't travel. So yeah, that has been a situation that there have been some improvements in it, but the reality is still very difficult. It does not resemble a truly free uh, labor system where someone can just move their labor if they're unhappy at the work they have. There are all kinds of like challenges and obstacles to do so. It, it, it sounds like slavery. I mean, is that what it is, really? Uh, you know, the description at times of, of modern slavery really has been has been raised. And when we watch the the workers, the workers cup, they discuss the you know, some of the workers are discussing this this issue and they, they batter. They they kind of like talk around this issue of freedom and and, and and slavery. I think it I mean, there are international human rights law terms, um, you know, around, for instance, forced labor, right? When people are essentially compelled to, to continue working in abusive conditions because they can't, they can't be, they can't leave in, in any way. I think it's it, what it is. It's definitely deeply uncomfortable watching and seeing how migrant workers, you know, the reality that they face in, in Qatar is something that I think is is so deeply uncomfortable. I don't think the type of access, for instance, in this documentary, where we're able to see the, the kind of real personal lives of migrant workers, that type of access, as far as I'm aware, has never been granted again by by Qatari authorities. Because even the kind of like the this is a, this is like the positive uh, image that that, that 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 film was supposed to kind of show, you know, is pretty is deeply disturbing. Yeah, I was actually surprised at the access they got, but I guess like. 
the filmmakers aren't really showing the worst aspects of what these workers are going through. And actually, it's also mostly, it's all just about men. We haven't actually talked about women. And I'm wondering what kind of roles women who are working in Qatar, what, what, what do they do? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is men and women. I think men are often uh, uh, the, 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 the kind of media focus because the media focus has been focused on, on construction. But there's a whole other set of, of industries, particularly in the service industry, in which migrant worker women, you know, comprise, you know, large segment of the, of the population. So m- migrant workers who are women working in, in, for instance, hotel industry, think, you know, face it can can face similar risks, right? They face some of the same problems of wage abuses, of wage theft, of of delayed wages, you know, confiscated passports. But they also face, or probably, or or have or have higher exposure to also different risks, right? So to physical assault and sexual assault by not only employers in, for instance, hotel hotel chains, but also guests, right? Uh, uh, for if you are working for um, different supply companies that that kind of distribute labor, you know, some of them have very restrictive um, uh, conditions around when uh, migrant worker women can kind of leave premises, and so and so, yeah, they face both the same as well as additional burdens, and certainly it's something that that I think has probably been underemphasized in um, in a lot of kind of media portrayals because there are an incredible number of of migrant worker women who are doing the same thing as men in terms of trying to bring remittances home to their families. Has the Qatari government done anything to stem this abuse? There have been some positive reforms, particularly in the last few years, but I think they can all be summarized as too little, too late, too narrow in scope, and huge gaps still remain. So to maybe just give a few examples, they have one of the challenges or one of the the abuses that migrant workers have faced around this kind of labor mobility issue is that they used to have to get something called a no-objection certificate if they wanted to change employers. What does that mean? Essentially, you want to change jobs. You need to get a certificate from the employer you want to leave and say, hey, I need that certificate to get this get this new job. Obviously, if you have an abusive employer or even just like not a great one, you know, they're going to withhold that certificate. The custody authorities have, have changed the law around that. And so more workers have more flexibility of changing jobs. However, even a reform like that, you know, has, has had big obstacles. So it, de facto, for instance, in this, in, this, in this case, employers are now asking for a resignation letter. So they're, they're essentially like trying to revive the same uh, obstacle for, for workers to to change their labor, you know, uh, um, even when the Qatari authorities have, have changed changed the law, right? To give one more example, they, they have tried over the past several years to compensate migrant workers for very serious wage abuses themselves. So according to Qatar's Ministry of Labor, since 2020, they have created this fund called the Wage Support and Insurance Fund that has given out over $164 million to migrant workers for wage abuses. That is a positive thing. However, let's, let's, take, let's think about that for a second. If they've given $164 million to migrant workers just in the past few years with all of this scrutiny, with all of these reforms, with all of this you know, journalistic and human rights group interest, 
what is actually owed to migrant workers for the many abuses that they faced, not just wage abuses, but deaths that were uncompensated since 2010. It must be an extraordinary amount. And I think that that really is the fundamental problem. These reforms are very much concentrated in the kind of past few years, but they don't address past abuses. So there's no um, redress for, for workers who maybe suffered, say, like, 10 years ago? Or, like, is there, like, a cap on, like, when that, workers can get that's right. compensated? That's right. I mean, right now, the position of FIFA and Qatari authorities is that, oh, if you faced serious abuses around, around wage theft, for instance, or you're a family of a migrant worker who has died and, and was uncompensated from a while ago, it's kind of, like, too bad. Honestly, we got a tournament to enjoy. Like, that's their attitude. It's, it's disrespectful and it's shameful, to be honest. But it's why human rights organizations, labor organizations, and an increasing number of uh, international football associations of, uh, of uh, footballers themselves have pushed for a remedy fund, a fund that FIFA should set up, and that we hope Qatari authorities support, that essentially looks to build a program to compensate migrant workers for serious abuses they've faced building World Cup infrastructure since the start of the tournament. But, uh, you know, for right now, FIFA and Qatari authorities are, are, are not budging, but we really hope to kind of increase the pressure. And it's also why we're asking organizations like uh, Canada Soccer, to say, hey, this is something that we want you to sign on to. If you believe in kind of fundamental labor rights, right, which we which we hope that they do, this is something that we want you to lend support to. And not just, you don't, we're not even asking for you to contribute. All we want you to do is say, hey, FIFA, this is something that's essential to our values because we're participating in this tournament. We are indirectly connected to these very serious abuses that built the tournament. And so we think this is something that will offer some reg- remedy, that will offer a more positive legacy for this amazing tournament that you know migrant workers are, are, are often proud of saying that they built, but with the problem being, if they weren't compensated for it, if they face serious abuses for it, it's hard to be truly proud when you've been abused for building something, you know, that other people are celebrating on. Which which uh, soccer associations have signed up for, uh, signed on to this remedy? Fund? Yeah, it's some it's some real prominent organizations: the the German Football Association, the Belgians, the UK, uh, the French. U.S. Soccer has also told us um, that they are supporting it, and so. Those are those are uh, you know quite prominent organizations, and I think you know to add on on the point of Canada Soccer and and why it's honestly just deeply disappointing that that you know they are unwilling so far to make a public comment is that you know they're the next tournament hosts right in 2026 Canada the U S and Mexico are co-hosting the the World Cup, and so you know I. My view is that if I was co-hosting or part of a co-hosting, you know, World Cup, I'd, I'd want to really like distinguish myself and say, hey, we believe in, in these fundamental rights. We're going to make our tournament. We're going to learn from the past errors and abuses of, of this tournament. And, and really, we're also going to, you know, put a positive uh, uh, signal that we believe in this. And so uh, I guess I'm genuinely surprised that they don't want to uh, they don't want to commit. Do you, Is there anything... Is it possible that they may not want to alienate or tick off FIFA in some way? It's very possible, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the global football industry is one in which you know there is FIFA holds a lot of power. They make an incredible amount of money. 
you know, from uh, from from holding these these World Cups, right? Because FIFA they don't pay for any of the tournament infrastructure, but they generate a lot of revenue from it in terms of advertising. But at the end of the day, is that you could say that same argument for a number of other football associations as well as individual footballers, uh, football commentators. And, you know, you would hope uh, people would be willing to take a stand, particularly when you have the privilege, you know, of not of not being at risk or facing the risks that, for instance, even migrant workers who have spoken out. Right. So people who have been at the most risk have have criticized and spoken out about these abuses. Sometimes they paid a serious price. Human Rights Watch has documented how migrant workers faced with kind of these like this terrible choice of speak out or go on kind of public strikes or not get paid for months have had to make these choices. There have been migrant workers such as uh, the Kenyan Malcolm Badali who has spoken out about human rights and he was deported from the country. So those people faced real risks. Canada soccer... I think is in a little bit of a better position. And so, you know, I think it's expected that they should try to take a stand on something that uh, I, I thought aligns with their values. Well, we've been talking about the worker, migrant workers in Qatar and FIFA World Cup, and they're in the spotlight right now. But, you know, we use migrant workers here in Ontario, for example, and there have been news reports about abuses that have happened on farms here. Is this just, is this a bigger is there a bigger conversation to be had about the rights of migrant workers everywhere, or is, or is is Qatar maybe a little more? Is the scale different in Qatar? I guess. So absolutely. Look. So the answer is is yes. Right. Like none of this negates you know having conversations about migrant worker abuses in other contexts, including. Uh, Canada and and the U.S. But I think what's unique about this FIFA World Cup in Qatar is that it is uniquely built on migrant labor abuses at a mass scale, right? I mean, it is, we've had over two two million migrant workers work uh, uh, to build this, uh, have built this infrastructure, right, at a time. It's just a huge number and a huge massive amount of which there are very serious abuses that have been documented for a dozen years. So I think the scale is is not, I, I, I wouldn't even want to hesitate and say it's unique, but it's certainly prominent, number one. Number two, the profit that is being generated based on these abuses is very widespread, right? Like, look at all of these entities that are profiting or benefiting from it, including us, right? Including us as spectators and as like fans for watching for watching the World Cup, you know, in November and December. And number three, there's something that can be done about it, right? Like I think there is an answer that we can, you know, use to address, but that doesn't negate, you know, answers and solutions and redress for migrant workers in many other parts. Actually, I think it's the opposite, is that trying to address some of these massive you know, injustices and abuses can set a positive model of like, okay, going forward, this might be a way that we can address in, in other areas. So that's why I think it's it's so critical. Um, it's not unique, but it's certainly prominent. And I think there's a, a massiveness to it that really needs, uh, needs uh, we need to like appreciate that and, and try to like figure out a solution for it. Has doing this work changed your relationship at all to the sport or to watching the World Cup? So are you going to watch it this year? Oh, that's a tough. That's a tough. Uh, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I, I love soccer. Growing up, I watched it as a kid. I I, I played it. Uh, you know, not unfortunately not as competitively as I, I as I wanted to, but I, I I enjoyed it, and I still I still watch the you know Premier League that comes on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, where I where I'm based in in the U.S. I you know I hesitate. I'm I'm deep. Look, I'm deeply uncomfortable. 
uh, with it. I feel like on the hook personally, not only as a soccer fan, but just talking with so many migrant workers that have lost a tremendous amount or have faced all of these serious abuses. I'm so deeply uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, FIFA and Qatar might just might just like, you know, uh, write it out and really not commit publicly to a fund where I know it would make such a meaningful difference in the kind of lives of both migrant workers and the families that have lost, you know, and there's no replacement for migrant workers who have died for families, but it certainly would go, it would be a positive step to compensating them. So like, I, I kind of like don't want to contemplate that, but I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, uh, it sounds trite that, 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 you know, senior people in FIFA and Qatar like do the right thing and that we can get enough pressure to, to have them publicly commit to what I think w- would leave a more positive legacy. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on Ondocs. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that's the podcast. Special thanks to Michael Page for coming on the show. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, our podcast manager is Shariar Tajvidi, and our executive producer is Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next screening.